Blog Talk Radio. Uh, 
we should be focusing on, what capabilities we should be bringing to those marketplaces, and uh, very much concerned and interested in where healthcare is going and where the transformational opportunities exist, and most importantly, where the digital and business opportunities are going to exist, because our view is that at this particular point in time, the fundamental changes that are made possible by digital technologies are things that have not been available for some period of time. So the intersection of technology and business is really a key component of not only Accenture, but Accenture's healthcare business. Excellent. And you talked about Accenture, and I'd always thought of Accenture as this organization that did a lot of consulting work. But in fact, you mentioned it briefly, you do actual hands-on operational work for organizations, including things like care management. Can you discuss some of that and how that works? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, right. If people think about us often as advisory. Uh, we, uh, for example, uh, provide the people and the services that go into a typical health plan for utilization management or disease management enrollment and some of the care management programs. In fact, a number of large health plans actually contract with us. And when uh, a member or a doctor is calling that health plan and interacting with their medical management staff around the issues I just described, they might very well be talking to uh, an Accenture employee and possibly a nurse sitting in the Philippines somewhere that is actually licensed in the state that that member lives in, uh, who is fully versed in all of the U.S. healthcare medical management functions, but uh, not living in the United States. So as part of this, and you mentioned with the Care Management Center, you're doing population health work. You've seen population health approaches around the world. Can you talk about some of the differences you see between what's called population health in the United States as well as overseas? Yes, absolutely. I, I, something I learned in law school was don't, you know, don't answer a question until you understand the question. And one of the interesting challenges with the dialogue around population health is that that word actually means different things to different people. So I often uh, lay out this spectrum of meanings. When I hear the word population health, I'm trying to figure out if the person is really talking about one of four things. One of the things that's often talked about, typically in the U.S., is uh, how do we manage the cost of a population? It's really about managing the cost within a budget. However, when some people talk about population health, what they're really talking about is how do I coordinate medical care either across settings or across time. Sometimes the term population health is actually a conversation about how do I engage in wellness and prevention, not necessarily illness care at all. And then finally, and we see this in some uh, European geographies in particular, is the conversation about population health is really a, a conversation about a convergence of what is often described as health care and social care. So think of that as how do we bring the budgets together for both the healthcare costs and the living costs associated with uh, the elderly or the frail because public sector is on the hook for the total. And so these are issues that should be brought together and managed together as a whole. So I would say that the economic or budget-based model is a pretty U.S.-based model, but once you start talking about the other dimensions, then you start to see those uh, much more um, present in other geographies. Although I would say they don't typically use the term population health the way, uh, you won't hear the term population health as much outside the U.S. as you do inside the U.S. 
And the last reason I say that is when uh, the term population health has its roots in public health, and in that context, it was often used to describe how do you maximize the health status of a population, not necessarily the health status of individuals, such that discussions were put on the table like, uh, is it better to not pay for end-of-life care for someone of a certain age, $100,000 of end-of-life care, or 10,000 vaccines for children because the average, for the, the average health of the population would improve if you made that income redistribution. And that is clearly not a conversation we're having in the U.S., but in some countries, if you say population health, that's actually what they think you're talking about. So a little bit of it is so, where you, you know, where you sit is where you stand on this issue. So in the U.S., we have providers who are looking at population health as a means to control their costs and and improve outcomes as, as per measure, say, from CMS, et cetera. But we also have this movement in the U.S. towards creating these broader communities of health. Is, has that created an issue because the terminology is not clear here in the U.S. as to what population health means? Yeah, I think I, uh, there's two parts to it. The uh, the terminology confusion can be a little bit um, complicated in terms of trying to get alignment around stakeholders, particularly if you're trying to bring government stakeholders and business and provider stakeholders together. But the other thing it does is it complicates a little bit what the real agenda is. So let me uh, uh, draw that picture this way. If you, when some people talk about population health, what they talk about is the total health of a pop, of a person. But the starting position is they're really talking about things related to their disease. However, if you actually look at factors that drive the health of a person, um, you see some really interesting insights. So, for example, from the perspective of a, of a citizen, if you ask them the question, uh, what constitutes their health, and there's some interesting research that's been around for a while. Edelman did this work uh, in 2010, 2011, uh, when they uh, did a global study around what they call the healthcare barometer, they asked citizens around the world about what they thought uh, were uh, constituted factors in their health. What they found was that uh, the number one factor people think about when you ask them about their health is lifestyle, followed by nutrition, followed by the environment. And the healthcare system is actually a distant fourth. So if you tell a citizen you're going to focus on their health, they may not be thinking about their disease at all. The next dimension to that is who exactly has the right to talk to me about my health? And this uh, Edelman work has actually pointed out that if you're focusing on lifestyle, which is the most common concept that citizens think about when they think about their health, they see themselves as principally responsible for that, followed by families and friends and the government. They don't actually think about the healthcare system. They only think about the healthcare system when you're actually talking about diseases as the input to health. The reason I make that point is that the, while it is uh, an important issue to deal with people's health, it may in fact be that the delivery system is really not the perch from which we can credibly deal with some of these issues if we take health in the broadest terms. So I think that's the, 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 the challenge here is if we're in the health business and we really say we're in the health business, it's much bigger than being in the illness business. And it, it, it's not something that we providers may know about or have the right to talk about. 
So in, in that case, and, and building upon this from your presentation that I saw both at the Population Health Alliance Forum and in Brazil, if providers aren't necessarily the place where the individuals are going or thinking about for their health, where should providers be focusing on their as they look at implementing systems in the United States? Is it population health? Is it cost? Where, where do you think they should be looking early yeah. on? Yeah, so my view is that health care is a component of health, and it's a critical part of it. It's just not the whole. And there's plenty of work to be done in health care, the whole spectrum of disease. So I think we have uh, every right and ability as providers to make that the best possible thing we can. My point simply is that even if we execute perfectly on the health care agenda, and there's plenty to do, that's not the total of the health agenda. And the, the question in my mind is, is simply if we want to try to focus on things like social factors and uh, lifestyle factors and nutrition factors, that ends up being the domain oftentimes of other stakeholders, uh, potentially um, other aspects of uh, um, other parts of civil society, other government agencies, et cetera, schools, uh, communities, uh, pick, pick the thing. And so what I would say to healthcare providers is, Focus on what you do the best because what you do the best still matters a lot uh, There's and there's plenty to do there. And you can create the tentacles or the bridges the other parts. Just realize that you are owning a part of the puzzle, not the whole thing. And so digging into that a little bit further, you had a slide on non-clinical sources of waste exceed the clinical sources, which sort of opened my eyes to uh, providers' cost, what was going on within the, within the system. Can you discuss that a little bit from uh, where yeah. that slide shows providers might want to focus? Yeah, absolutely. So if um, from the delivery system perspective, one of the ways to think about opportunity and what we can do better is to ask the question, where, are, where, is, where does waste exist? Uh, and so a lot of our population health efforts have been focused on uh, uh, things like handoffs and care coordination. If you step all the way back and look at healthcare costs, so not the broad societal costs of health, but healthcare costs. There was an interesting uh, piece of research published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2012 that uh, the lead author was Don Berwick, and this was after Don left CMS uh, when he did some work with some collaborators at RAND, where they looked at all of the published research on sources of waste in healthcare, and they looked at peer-reviewed and gray literature, and they looked at the scenarios, uh, the range of estimates that these different categories contribute to waste in our healthcare system. And they created this bar graph. It's actually a, 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 pic, a wedge picture from high to low. They stack them up with the idea being that these are the categories that contribute to the overall excess healthcare expenditure in these states. What was interesting is if you looked at that picture, there are really five distinct categories and each of them roughly represents about a fifth of the opportunity. And I say roughly because it's give or take a few percent, but the five categories are Number one, fraud and abuse. So pretty straightforward uh, in terms of just um, this is really you know, malicious actions for, uh, that drive health care costs up for which we can do things about. The second is pricing failures. And by pricing failures, what they mean is a marketplace that an individual is exposed to either you know, anywhere between a $600 and a $3,000 bill for the same MRI with the same insurance company potentially going to the same provider or to different providers in the same community. The theory being that an efficient market shouldn't have that kind of disparity in pricing. That's a pricing failure. 
The third is administrative complexity. A little bit more than a fifth of the total waste in the system comes from administrative complexity. The sixth is a category they call overtreatment. And that's an interesting one because that gets into a more complex conversation about cost benefit and risk benefit. Uh, so it's not necessarily as easy. It, it might be one man's overtreatment might be another man's. Um, um, there's no, you know, uh, it, it, saving my life is a priceless. Is one way to think about it. The last category, which is about a fifth, is the total sum total of failures of care delivery and failures of core co care coordination. Said another way, if we perfectly execute on our agenda around care coordination perfectly execute on it. We haven't attacked 80% of the waste opportunity in the system. And I make that point because I think a lot of our population health uh, strategies have been really focused rightly on that opportunity. Just recognize that even when we do it as well as we can, it's only a minority of the total opportunity. The other interesting thing that comes forward is that administrative complexity bucket is a representation not just of the fact that we have complicated systems like lots of different payment models and lots of different contracts and people spending time reconciling it, but the complexity of our financial incentive systems. So every time we introduce a complex financial incentive system to try to get people to do the right thing, it often uh, get, uh, creates an increase in the administrative complexity cost. I'll give you an example. The published data from the Blue Cross Blue Shield alternative quality contract, which was sort of the predecessor to the ACL models that Medicare stood up. Their data was published in 2012 and 2014, looking at the two and four year results. And they, what they described was essentially, even though that model reduced medical expenditures, the cost of the program, the infrastructure and support cost of the programs eradicated the savings until the fourth year of the program. So you might solve one problem, but you might increase the cost in another part of the section. So trying to optimize that becomes a really interesting challenge. Definitely, and as, as we think about challenges from the provider perspective, and you, and you now laid out 20% of this maybe with care coordination, et cetera, but population health really is a big buzzword in the provider community. So what have you seen out there that's successful and where might providers look to improve what they're doing currently? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, basically um, a lot of the conversations we're having with the delivery system, when they say population health, they really are talking about managing the cost to a budget. And so the strategies are uh, start by understanding what the costs are of a, pot, a group of patients and uh, then trying to figure out how to manage that cost within the budget. So when you start to do that, you realize that the cost of a, a care for a population is a product of both unit price and utilization. Honestly, it's not just a utilization only function. And most of the managing the cost within the budget, first order savings tend to come out actually on managing unit price as opposed to managing use. Uh, that's the same thing, again, that the research around the uh, Massachusetts Alternative Quality Contract showed. In the early days, most of the savings came from reducing prices, not reducing use of services. And then eventually, it started to get uh, make some traction around reducing use. So what do we see? We see providers first trying to figure out what things actually cost, then trying to figure out how much of the variability in the cost is related to variability in price, and how much is related to variability in use, and then 
try to execute strategies to attack both of those. And the low-hanging fruit, quite honestly, tends to often be on the price side of the equation before it gets to the use side of the equation. The interesting challenge in, the, in, in, the, in that language, though, is that their primary objective is how do you manage costs within a budget while keeping the quality of the care the same or better, but the primary driver is how do you manage the cost of the budget. In other words, these models are not put forward where the provider is told, um, I want you to maximize the health of the population. And if that costs a little bit more than we're spending today, that's okay. The conversation is, this is all we can afford to spend. Do the best you can, but don't make things worse, is the real honest conversation. So I think where some organizations are, you know, if they say that, then they're really focusing on the mechanisms I described to you. There are some organizations who actually see it slightly differently. They're trying to figure out how to create really true um, uh, innovations in population health. They're not focused on managing the budget. They're actually focused on improving a particular aspect of the health of a population. In that case, they're looking at whether or not they can bring uh, t technologies or services to bear that might actually discernibly either improve the patient, the quality of care or the patient experience, with the argument being that those are the levers toward uh, improving the health of a population. A lot of people will look at the triple aim and, and say that um, the concept of the triple aim puts on the table not just clinical outcomes, but the care experience as being fair game around improving health. Uh, other people would say it's really the biological outcomes only that they're seeking and that the experiential side doesn't, isn't necessarily their objective. That's a mindset issue that different groups have around this conversation. So what are some of the exciting things you're seeing in the technology front? Yeah. Well, what's, I think what's really interesting is the conversation we're just beginning to have but haven't had yet, and which is really um, the long-term challenge here around how do we improve the health of a population and make it economically sustainable requires us to move away from thinking about how do we make healthcare more efficient to how do we make healthcare more effective. And the reason I say that is uh, if you actually look at healthcare costs over time, what you see in the United States is that, um, actually, what you see in every country is the relationship between healthcare expenditure and growth, gross domestic product is that healthcare expenditure tends to increase at whatever that country's gross domestic product is tracking at, plus one to three percent. The long-term, meaning 60-year historical average in the United States is GDP plus 2.7 percent. But in the last 20 years, healthcare expenditure in the U.S. was actually GDP plus about 1.5%. The last four years, it was just at GDP, and the 10-year out projection is back to GDP plus 1%. I've looked at other countries that spend one-tenth or one-twentieth of what we spend on healthcare in the United States. You see the exact same relationship. At whatever level of absolute expenditure, the relationship between healthcare expenditure and GDP is the same. The reason that's the case is that healthcare is fundamentally an expert labor-based economy, meaning the single most expensive input into creating a unit of healthcare is the cost of professionals, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, therapists, etc. And when the model, when, when a market is set up that way, wages can never increase at a rate less than the overall economy. When you add on to that medical discovery and an aging population, you get the GDP plus 1% to 3%. Uh, other economies like 
uh, healthcare or education, where uh, labor is the single biggest input. And as a result, what we've actually seen in healthcare in the United States is a erosion of productivity because of dependency on labor as an input. And if you look at other parts of our economy that become more productive over time, the way they do it is they try to figure out how to produce more outputs with less reliance on human labor. And the way they do that is by several strategies. One of them is, first of all, you try to figure out how to move labor from more expensive to less expensive. And in healthcare, we have those conversations there. We often call them top of the license conversations. That's sort of the elementary version. The next conversation is how do you move work back to a customer? And then the last one is how do you move work to a machine? Because the real objective here is to be able to provide healthcare for as many people as possible without having to mint as many providers as we are doing currently to reach that demand. And if we can do that, then what happens is not only do we eliminate the unnecessary units of care, but for the units that remain, we actually reduce the cost of producing them. And this is the the one, I think, challenge that our current thinking has, which is uh, our population health model ends up being focused primarily on eliminating unnecessary units. And for that, we get a short-term resetting of the baseline. But the long-term cost of the remaining units will go back to GDP plus 1 to 3%. Digital technology is one of those areas that has emerged as an option that we have not really thought about before that really allow us to seriously think about how do we shift work from experts either back to patients themselves or to machines and give us an economic lift that also gives us a better outcome at the same time. So there's a couple of examples of that, but that's the basic argument that I think is really the most interesting. So could you give us an idea of a couple examples that you think are going to be yep. exciting to allow the system to get more efficient? Sure. Two good examples of how digital technology makes healthcare more affordable by making it more productive as well as better and more effective from the outcome perspective are um, telehealth and social platforms for healthcare. So I'll just give you a brief uh, description of what I mean by both of those. When I talk about telehealth, I'm not talking about just simply solving the problem of remote access or distance. That actually has been the history of telehealth, right, meeting the needs of the unserved. But what's interesting about virtual health, let's call it virtual because it's a broader category, is the recognition that virtual health is actually an alternative for the already served. That's the reason why it's often in the top three or five investment thesis for venture capital, right? Venture, venture capital has not decided that rural Alaska is suddenly a compelling value proposition. What they recognize is moving healthcare from a physical to a physical and virtual changes fundamentally the economics of healthcare and the outcomes in a way that is not possible in a physical world. So what do I mean by that? There are a few things that you have to solve for in telehealth in order to make it, or virtual health in order to make it palatable. The first is you have to make the virtual interaction at least as good as face-to-face. And that has actually already been solved for in terms of the quality of audio and video um, evolution. And there's plenty of data now that says that with high-quality interactions, uh, patients are equally satisfied and willing to recommend a virtual interaction and a face-to-face interaction. And that creates a level of parity, but that by itself is not good enough. The real question is, what can we do when we have a virtual system that we could never do in a physical system, no matter how hard we tried? And one of them is, this, is the ability to have a one-to-many relationship. One patient and many doctors at once, or one doctor and many patients. The reason that that's not possible in the physical world is the cost of convening everybody in a room is prohibitive. But in a virtual world, 
it can be significantly less. So one patient, many doctors, you have simple examples like why can't every patient who has cancer be uh, given the opportunity for a collaborative treatment plan as opposed to only those few that land at a cancer center where that's the only, where that's part of the program to what you're seeing now in some urgent care examples or some primary care examples where when the patient goes to the primary care doctor and a specialist needs to be involved, they can either bring the specialist in into that visit while the patient's there, or as has been demonstrated with uh, dermatology, asynchronously set up the dermatology visit, meaning the primary care doctor essentially takes an image and puts a history out, and then the dermatologist overnight looks at a high-definition picture of the lesion as well as the history and comes back with a preliminary assessment compared to the wait three weeks or four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks don't have the chart and have to have the whole process over where the entire face-to-face interaction between the doctor and the patient is only one or two minutes anyways. So technology makes that possible. So the one to many is the other one, which is um, one patient, one doctor, many patients. The second one is social platforms. I want to talk about that before we uh, close out our session here. Uh, In the UK, something called a big white wall has been developed that allows actually primary mental health to be provided by people for other people anonymously because it recognizes there's not enough mental health care providers. Mental health itself, there's a stigma associated with going to a mental health provider so people don't want to go. Uh, If they don't go, their untreated medical conditions that are associated with their mental health conditions cost more. And then finally, if you actually go to mental health care, you realize that peer-based care is a big part of it. So the big white wall was actually developed in the UK with the idea that the entire process could allow patients in the community to talk to each other. But the whole thing is curated by mental health professionals. Nothing is written without it being observed first by a mental health care professional. And if an intervention is necessary, physical or virtual, the professionals can do that. They've actually been able to demonstrate a five dollars to $600 improvement per capita with the same or higher levels of satisfaction. And the result is a rollout going on in the UK where it's estimated that now one in five people in the NHS have that as their primary entry into the mental health system. Well, Kave, thank you so much. Those last two examples are just fantastic. And in fact, I feel like I've been plugged into a one-to-many relationship just listening to you talk about this breadth of content and the depth of it. Thanks again so much for joining us. We really appreciate you having you on Pop Health Week. And with that, I'll turn it over to you, Greg. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Amazing insights. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, We'll be uh, the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Kaveh Safavi, for his time and insights today. Do follow him and Accenture Health on Twitter via at Dr. Kaveh Safavi. That's D-R-K-A-V-E-H-S-A-F-A-V-I. And Accenture Health, respectively and on the web at EccentureHealth.com. Lots of resources there. We do this weekly at 9 p.m. Uh, 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern on Wednesdays. Join us next week for our special guest, which is Steve Blumberg of Atlantic Care. Until now, for Fred Goldstein, this is Greg Master saying bye now.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.